Please pray with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I feel like the lectionary has given us a series over the last few weeks of difficult passages to deal with, and today is no exception. But as we come to Matthew 18, I actually want to step in, not to that difficult part up front first, but to the stunning promise that's on the backside of that passage. Look at verse 20 of Matthew 18. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. It's a stunning promise, one that the church has prized through the centuries, one that points to the significance of us gathering together. Because if this promise is true, what's happening right now is something that should knock us down in awe. Where two or three are gathered, there am I among them. In order to understand this, it's good just to take like 30 seconds to wrestle with the concept of the presence of Jesus. Because I think these are the sort of promises that we miss the significance of if we don't think hard about them. God's omnipresent, right? He's everywhere. And sometimes we don't take these sort of promises seriously because of the fact that we believe, well, he's everywhere all at once, all the time. But if you look at the end of Revelation, you will see that there is such a thing as God's full and unveiled presence, his dynamic presence, and it is different than what we mean when we say he's here with us right now. We're told that when we see him, we will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. His dynamic, unveiled presence is transformative. And when people see it, they get knocked back and knocked down. My point in bringing that up is we can understand that when God fully unveils his presence, it's so different in quantity that it's almost different in quality. I want to use that as a lens to understand these other somewhat unveiled promises of his presence that we see in the gospel, like the one that we're given here. This isn't the only instance where God offers a particular promise of his presence a sort of semi-unveiled vision of him with us. In Matthew 28, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, go into the, all the earth and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I've commanded you. In that moment, he attaches a particular promise of his presence. Behold, in that moment, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's a promise of his presence that's more than the norm attached to evangelism. At the Last Supper, when he looked at his disciples and he said, this is my body, this is my blood, he was offering them a promise of his particular presence, an offering of himself in the Eucharist, what we would call a sacramental presence. More than the norm happens there. Same thing's true in baptism. Romans 6 tells us that all those who are baptized into Jesus Christ, by their baptism, they were buried into his death. Somehow baptism includes us in the death of Christ, in the grace of God. And that promise of his presence in that way is more than the norm. This passage is one of those more than the norm moments. It's what I'll call the prayer meeting presence. 
So we have the evangelism presence. When you go, I am with you. We have the Eucharist presence. I offer myself to you here. We have the baptism presence. You're buried with me here. We have the prayer meeting presence. When two or three gather, I'm there in their midst. This prayer meeting is the context, like I said, of this promise of his presence. Back up and look at verse 19. He says, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. It's the context. But there's a stipulation to this context. It's not just any time you get together, I'm there with you. The stipulation for this context is if this gathering is in my name. And this is actually a large stipulation. Many of us say after our prayers or before we do something at church, this is in the name of Jesus. And those are good things to say because they remind us of what is ultimately true. But it's more than just words that he's pointing to. To gather in the name of Jesus is to actually gather according to his desires to gather according to his character, to gather according to his plan, his agenda, his purpose. In other words, a gathering of Christians is only in the name of Jesus if that gathering is Jesus gets to call the shots in this meeting. Jesus chairs it. His longings, his desires, his character set the agenda. We don't get to do anything out of line with what he says. It's only in the name of Jesus if it's in accord with the fullness of who he is. That's the stipulation for this promise. I think all of us can step back from that and say that there have been lots of gatherings of Christians that never once considered the desires of Jesus. Never once let his agenda run the show. Never once said his character dominates how we do what we do. I'm not talking here just about church services, that it certainly includes that. I'm talking about any time Christians come together. There's plenty of instances where we just forget to consider what he wants. So a group of Christians planning something together and we plunge in and never once stop and say, is this what the Lord wants at all? Never put the brakes on and say, is this according to his character? Is this the way he would do this? There's plenty of times we just forget. There's other times that Christians have just been outright opposed to the methods of Jesus because they actually were too threatening to them. Because they don't jive with the methods of the world. And so there are times when we gather that are in our own name rather than the name of Jesus. But Jesus' stipulation is, if this gathering is in my name, in other words, if my voice, my opinion, my words, my desires, my agenda, my character, if all of that dictates what you do and what you say, I'm with you. He attaches another promise to that one that, again, should knock us down in its staggering aspect because he says, if in one of those moments where you're actually gathered in my name, where you're actually driven by my agenda and my desires, if in that moment you're praying for something and you find yourself amongst the group gathered in perfect unity of prayer, expect the Father to answer it. That's something that should make us go, whoa. It's so easy to take these promises and to try to water them down because they are so staggering. When you're gathered in that moment with that sort of unity, that sort of adherence to the character in the name of Christ, and when in that 
prayer time, there is unity amongst you. Expect the Father to show up. It makes me wonder how much of his promise we simply miss because we're just too driven by our own agenda in those moments. Because we're not stopping to consider the name of Jesus and all that it means for us. It makes me wonder how much of his promise we miss because we don't wait in prayer long enough for there to be actual unity. Prayer is kind of in name only and we just move on. And there's not a lingering and a wrestling and a waiting in prayer until the Spirit unifies us in the will of the Father. Think how much of his promise is sort of untouched by us because we don't yield to these stipulations and wait in patience. I think it's interesting that his promise is when two or three are gathered. It has nothing to do with numbers. It has nothing to do with the things that the world can see, that the world understands, that the world respects. He doesn't say, if you can get 5,000, I'll show up to your meeting. Make it worth my time. How big is the honorarium? He doesn't say those sorts of things. The point is, is it driven by a particular question? What does Jesus want here? What is his will here? What's his desire here? The driving force that he's attaching this promise to is the thing that is driving us and not the numbers. He's asking us, is this gathering for me or is it for you? Is it for your own agenda, your own pride, your own sense that you need to feel better about yourself because you've really done something, your own inertia just because you've always done this so you'll keep gathering together? Or is it actually for me? And he says, if it's actually for me, if that's the reason you're here, it doesn't matter how many people are there. He's concerned with why we gather and seemingly very unconcerned with the size of the group. This reminds me of all those times in the Gospels when people came up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you. And you can imagine the disciples going, another recruit? Check, yes. And Jesus turns to them and says, do you understand my agenda? Do you understand that I came to lay my life down and that's what I'm asking you to do? And those people turn and they walk away. Or a guy says, I want what you have to offer. And he says, do you understand that it will come at the cost of your idolatry to money? And the man walks away. The disciples are going there, another check, another recruit, another number. And Jesus is saying, no, I don't care if the group is very small. It has to be driven by my agenda. He seems to have a propensity to do incredible things with very small groups who are united according to his character, his promise, his name. This means, this when two or three are gathered, this means, and this is the part where I started to get excited this week, this means that this promise is actually on the table every single time one of our small group gathers. It's not just a church gathering we're talking about when two or three are gathered. This means that this promise, the promise that he would actually be there, that he would respond to your prayers, that promise is on the table any time the smallest cluster of Christians gathers around the character and the word and the name of Jesus Christ. This promise is on the table in the smallest, in the humblest of settings. A small group of Christians get together to wrestle with something wrong that's going on in one of their lives, to pray for each other. This promise is on the table. 
A small team at the church meets to pray about a future ministry. This promise is on the table. A husband and wife gather to pray for their children. This promise is on the table. A friend seeks out another friend to lift them up in the Lord and to strengthen them. This promise is on the table. It's not just when you gather on Sunday mornings. Anytime when two or three, if there's this conformity to my name, my character, my desires, my agenda, my longing, my will, if there's this unity of prayer, this promise is on the table. It's startling to me how little we consider how much he's actually promising to us and how many gatherings or meetings or moments with Christian friends or brothers and sisters or husbands and wives we go into expecting that we need to make something happen or expecting that we need to set the agenda, oblivious to Jesus' statement that if it's in my name, I'll be there. If you're united in prayer in my name, the Father will show up. It's not that every time we get together needs to be that serious. Play is from the Lord. Laughter is from the Lord. There is time and place for gatherings of Christians that are just enjoying his goodness. But when we have people meeting to talk about him, to pray for one another, to think about the things that matter, we should come in willing to jettison our agenda, our desires, adhere to Jesus's, and then expect that he will show up when we do that. One of the jokes about this passage is that Jesus says when two or three are gathered, because that's as many as you can expect to get to come to a prayer meeting. There's some truth in that, right? It's only the select few. But actually behind that joke is something that I think is really encouraging. Because it seems that in the history of the church, God has done some of his most stunning things when just a couple of people adhere to him about a particular issue. You think at how many shakings and great revivals and transformations occurred because of one or two or three men and women who actually said, we'll cling together in the name of Jesus over this particular issue. I think of the Clapham sect, the one led by William Wilberforce, the group that brought down slavery in the British Empire, a small little group of followers who said we will be united together in the name of Jesus on this. I think of Luther and his good friend Melanchthon, who were united that the gospel will be proclaimed. And it was. I think about the Wesleys in Whitfield, this very small group of people who said, the Anglican church is refusing to preach the gospel in England. We will take matters into our own hands. And God honored them because of their uniting in this. The number of times when God says, I don't care if you have 40 people. I want two or three who are adhering to me, caring about my agenda, following me, and I'll be with them. It's a stunning promise, like I said. It's a promise that applies to all sorts of our different meetings. Small groups, parents praying for their children as they go off to college or as they struggle with the faith late in life. It's a promise that applies to friends holding each other up in the faith and encouraging each other. And it is a promise that applies, obviously, to our large church gatherings. It applies in lots of contexts. But it's interesting to me that Jesus gives this promise in a very particular context. 
My point is that it applies to lots of contexts. But he gives the promise in a particular context. It's a particular type of gathering that he's talking about when he actually gives this promise. Look at verses 14, excuse me, 15 through 18. Look, I want you to look at 14. You just don't have it in front of you. Look at 15 through 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The context that Jesus gives this promise in is a really hard circumstance. It's the hard circumstance of Christians confronting one another over their sin. It's one of those really hard circumstances that no one wants to initiate and no one wants to receive. People confronting each other over sin in their life. That's the context of this promise. The type of gathering Jesus is depicting in his mind when he gives the promise. That would be what the prayer that he's imagining when you agree on these things, the Father is going to answer you. That's the prayer that he's imagining. This very hard circumstance of Christians confronting one another. It may be that he gave this promise that applies to all these circumstances in this particular context because he knows that that's the place where we need his presence most. That's the place where we're most likely to make a mess of things. It may be that that's why he gave this promise in that circumstance. It may be that that's the place where we're most inclined to doubt his presence, to think that it's all just up to us to figure things out, to think that it's hopeless, that there's nothing that can be done. It may be that how we deal with those circumstances is profoundly important to him. Whatever his reasoning Jesus chose to give this promise that applies to many circumstances in the context of this one particular very difficult circumstance. The call to confront one another over patterns of sinful behavior. That call that most of us don't want to hear. And the people who like to hear it are the ones probably least equipped to go start doing it. There's a lot that can be said about that call. And I don't have time to go through it all. Honestly, as I looked at this passage this week, I wrestled because there's two halves of it, the promise Jesus gives and this whole call to actually step into each other's life. And I had to make a decision, which time do we have time to deal with in any sort of adequate way? And I chose the latter half. But there are things that we can just say out loud about this particular call. The Bible offers us guardrails on it. Matthew 7 says, don't be judged unless you be judged. In other words, when we get into this situation, there's a certain ultimate judgment that we leave in the hands of God. A certain point where we have to approach it in humility, knowing that we in the end are not the judge over this person's life, that God determines that. Matthew 7 offers the guardrail that if there's a log in your own eye, you better take that out before you start talking about somebody else. That we are prone to hypocrisy in these moments very easily, and we need to do a lot of self-analysis before we get into it. Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and tares, it bars Christians from using violence to uproot people in these sorts of judgments and in these sorts of discipline. Violence of deed, violence of word. 
Let it be till the end and the angels will bring the harvest to heaven where the Lord of the harvest will sort it out. There's a certain finality to the judgment that's in God's hands and not in ours that demands that we can't do certain things in this process. And the church has sinned in that way many times in its history when it's gone after people aggressively and abusively in spite of what Jesus says in the parable of the wheat and the tares. I think about the guardrail that is given to this passage in Luke 18, the parable of the two men praying in the temple, where Jesus told this parable about those who trusted in their own righteousness and viewed others with contempt. In other words, when we come into those situations, we need to come in with humility, well aware of the grace that we need from the Lord, not thinking that we're better than the person that we're confronting. I think about the guardrails of 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul says, what do I have to do with judging the world? It's for us to judge those inside the church. In other words, it's not Christians' job to be the scolds of the world. We can speak truth, but it's not our job to correct their behavior. Our job is to deal with the stuff going on in our own family. There are guardrails throughout the scripture. Even in this passage, there's guardrails. Go privately first. Preserve their dignity. Give them a chance to repent when no one knows about this matter. Don't gossip about it. Preserve their dignity. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. If one is caught in a trespass, let those who are spiritual restore the one in a spirit of gentleness. There's a tenderness to this that respects the person that we're dealing with. Even if they refuse to listen to that private, gentle word, get another or maybe two that go with you. Keep it small This isn't about destroying their reputation. It's not about proving yourself right in other people's eyes. There's guardrails within this passage. Even the guardrail, if if they refuse, even when the whole church says you've got to step back from this sin. There's guardrails that say, even then, treat them as a tax collector and a Gentile. In other words, they're not a part of the fellowship, but they're a mission field. Because the way Jesus treated tax collectors and Gentiles is objects of love and mission, people to go pursue. There's guardrails through and through this passage and others. But we don't have time to chase all of those in depth. And we don't have time to chase in depth all of the ways that this passage has been weaponized or abused. Because people have been hurt by churches too quick to pick up the idea of judgment and discipline and come chasing after people for all the wrong reasons, full of hypocrisy, going after victims, instead of the people who did the abuse and the sexual scandals in many of the denominations right now, give us examples of times when the people who were hurt most were the people who were actually disciplined, completely against the name of Jesus in every way, shape, and form. We failed, in other words, to deal with this sort of thing well. But our failure doesn't absolve us of the call. Our failure doesn't absolve us of the call to actually step into each other's lives and to confront each other for willful patterns of unrepentant sin. It doesn't nullify Jesus' promise to be present with us when we gather according to his character in those difficult situations. I want to close with the reason why Jesus calls us to do this. And I think, honestly, the ultimate reason why he attaches the promise of his presence to these sorts of situations. Jesus wants us to do this because he actually longs for us to be rescued. 
If you look at what immediately precedes this, the part that I joked, I wish you had in your order of service, but I didn't think ahead to put it in there. If you look at that part, it's the story of the 99 sheep and the person going out to rescue the one. And it ends with the statement, when he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more over it than the 99 who never went astray. And then he says, so it's not the will of my father that any one of these little ones should perish. Echoing those words from Ezekiel that we heard, that God doesn't desire the death of sinners. You see, Jesus understands that our sin will destroy us. We can kid ourselves all day long and pretend like that's not the case, but he understands that our sin will destroy us, and he does not want that to occur. Your life simply is precious to him. Your life is precious to him. And we can pretend all day long that the things that we do don't matter. But he knows the truth, that they will destroy our hearts, our souls, our minds, our relationships. And he does not want that to occur. We are precious to him. And so he calls us to do the very, very bold and terrifying thing of being his agents when we see one another stepping into places of destruction. He says, go to him. His agenda in that moment is not prove yourself right, not get vengeance, not show how good you are. His agenda in those moments is, I love this person. I want them rescued. You see how that would change the confrontation? If we went in with the heart of Jesus that said, I long for your rescue, not to prove myself right. I long for you to be restored, not to show how righteous I am. If we went in with that sort of agenda, it would transform these situations. It would mean that we were going in in Jesus' name rather than ours. Because usually when we confront somebody else, we're going in our own name. We're going for our reasons. We're going because we're hurt and we want to hurt someone back. We want to get vengeance. Going in his name means going in loving and delighting in the life of the other, seeking to bring their rescue. And Jesus says, when you do that together in my name, I'm with you. I'm with you. It's a profound promise. It's a profound passage. Some of y'all may need simply to hear the fact that your life is so precious to Jesus that he's not content with the ways that you are walking away from him. That may be the thing that you need to hear. That there are things that you're doing that you have pushed aside and you're just ignoring and pretending like they're not there. And Jesus is saying to you, your life is too precious to me. Let that go. Some of you may need to hear that. There's others of you that may need to hear very simply the call to step into somebody else's life. But if that call is the one that you hear, remember that it is to be in the name of Jesus and not in your name. That means he set the agenda, the reasons why, and the methods how. It's all his, not our own. And all of us, though, remember his promise that he will be with us, that we are not alone. Remember his promise that when we gather in his name, he is amongst us. Amen.